When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. In December of 1862, Walt Whitman left his home in Brooklyn and traveled to Falmouth, Virginia, uh, just after uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg, to search for his brother to see if he was even still alive, uh, his brother being a soldier in the war. Uh, He found his brother, I believe, on the very first day he was there, and uh, after staying some time with his brother in Falmouth, Uh, Whitman himself moved on to Washington, D.C., and spent a great deal of the remaining years of the Civil War uh, in Washington, D.C., in the uh, hospitals for the soldiers. And here, uh, some of the most uh, incredible things in his life took place, uh, of him caring for these soldiers, of uh, writing letters home, to parents for soldiers who, who who did not have the ability to do so, or of simply sitting by the bedside of soldiers as they died uh, of just horrendous wounds. Um, it's been said by at least one of his biographers that the dream that Whitman had and that he put forth so well in the succeeding editions of Leaves of Grass of democracy, brotherhood, uh, I don't know what you would say, uh, universal affection uh, among human beings, um, that, that he never found this in a better place than he did in those hospitals. But the, the sad thing was, the biographer noted, is that he got his wish, but in a charnel house. And it has been also been suggested that Whitman's poetry. Uh, He only published the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855, uh, and uh, the Civil War was only five or six years later. Um, That he wrote his best poetry before the Civil War, and that the experience of being with these soldiers day in and day out, as much as it fulfilled him and made him feel as if he was doing something worthwhile. It, At the same time, it just drained him for the rest of his life. I, don't, I really don't have an opinion on whether or not that is true. Uh, but uh, one of the things I wanted to read today was a letter that he wrote to the parents of one of the soldiers that he befriended and who ended up dying in the hospital. This was written in Washington, D.C. on August 10, 1863. 
to the parents of Erastus Haskell. And this is what Walt Whitman wrote. Mr. and Mrs. Haskell, dear friends, I thought it would be soothing to you to have a few lines about the last days of your son, Erastus Haskell, of Company K, 141st New York Volunteers. I write in haste and nothing of importance, only I thought anything about Erastus would be welcome. From the time he came to Armory Square Hospital till he died, there was hardly a day but I was with him a portion of the time, if not during the day, then at night. I had no opportunity to do much, nor anything for him, as nothing was needed, only to wait the progress of his malady. I am only a friend visiting the wounded and sick soldiers, not connected with any society or state. From the first I felt that Erastus was in danger, or at least was much worse than they in the hospital supposed. As he made no complaint, they perhaps thought him not very bad. I told the doctor of the ward to look him over again. He was a much sicker boy than he supposed, but he took it lightly and said, I know more about these fever cases than you do. The young man looks very sick, but I shall certainly bring him out of it all right. I have no doubt the doctor meant well and did his best. At any rate, about a week or so before Erastus died, he got really alarmed, and after that he and all the doctors tried to help him, but without avail. Maybe it would not have made any difference anyhow. I think Erastus was broken down, poor boy, before he came to the hospital here. I believe he came here about July 11th. Somehow I took to him. He was a quiet young man, behaved always correct and decent, said little. I used to sit on the side of his bed. I said once, you don't talk any, Erastus. You leave me to do all the talking. He only answered quietly, I was never much of a talker. The doctor wished everyone to cheer him up very lively. I was always pleasant and cheerful with him, but did not feel to be very lively. Only once I tried to tell him some amusing narratives, but after a few moments I stopped. I saw that the effect was not good, and after that I never tried it again. I used to sit by the side of his bed, pretty silent, as that seemed most agreeable to him. And I felt it so, too. He was generally oppressed for breath. And with the heat, and I would fan him, occasionally he would want a drink. Some days he dozed a good deal. Sometimes when I would come in, he woke up, and I would lean down and kiss him. He would reach out his hand and pat my hair and beard a little, very friendly, as I sat on the bed and leaned over him. Much of the time his breathing was hard, his throat worked. They tried to keep him up by giving him stimulants, milk punch, wine, etc. These perhaps affected him, for often his mind wandered somewhat. I would say, Erastus, don't you remember me, dear son? Can't you call me by name? Once he looked at me quite a while when I asked him, and he mentioned over inaudibly a name or two. One sounded like Mr. Setchell, and then, as his eyes closed, he said quite slow as if to himself, I don't remember, I don't remember, I don't remember. It was quite pitiful. One thing he was, he could not talk very comfortably at any time. His throat and chest seemed stopped. 
I have no doubt at all he had some complaint besides the typhoid. In my limited talks with him, he told me about his brothers and sisters by name and his parents. He wished me to write to his parents and send them all his love. I think he told me about his brothers living in different places, one in New York City, if I recollect right. From what he told me, he must have been poorly enough for several months before he came to the Armory Square Hospital. The first week in July, I think he told me, he was at the regimental hospital at a place called Baltimore Corners, not many miles from the White House, on the peninsula. Previous to that, for quite a long time, although he kept around, he was not at all well, couldn't do much, was in the band as a fifer, I believe. While he lay sick here, he had his fife laying on the little stand by his side. He once told me that if he got well, he would play me a tune on it. But, he says, I am not much of a player yet. I was very anxious he should be saved, and so were they all. He was well used by the attendants. Poor boy, I can see him as I write. He was tanned and had a fine head of hair, and looked good in the face when he first came, and was in pretty good flesh too, had his hair cut close about ten or twelve days before he died. He never complained, but it looked pitiful to see him lying there, with such a look out of his eyes. He had large clear eyes. They seemed to talk better than words. I assure you, I was attracted to him much. Many nights, I sat in the hospital by his bedside till far in the night. The lights would be put out. Yet, I would sit there silently, hours late, perhaps fanning him. He always liked to have me sit there, but never cared to talk. I shall never forget those nights. It was a curious and solemn scene, the sick and wounded lying around in their cots, just visible in the darkness, and this dear young man, close at hand, lying on what proved to be his deathbed. I do not know his past life, but what I do know and what I saw of him, he was a noble boy. I felt he was one I should get very much attached to. I think you have reason to be proud of such a son, and all his relatives have cause to treasure his memory. I write you this letter because I would do something at least in his memory. His fate was a hard one to die so. He is one of the thousands of our unknown American young men in the ranks, about whom there is no record or fame, no fuss made about their dying so unknown. But I find in them a real precious and royal ones of this land, giving themselves up, aye, even their young and precious lives, in their country's cause. Poor dear son, though you were not my son, I felt to love you as a son. What short time I saw you sick and dying here. It is as well as it is, perhaps better. For who knows whether he is not better off, that patient and sweet young soul to go, than we are to stay. So, farewell, dear boy. It was my opportunity to be with you in your last rapid days of death. No chances, no chance, as I have said, to do anything particular, for nothing could be done. Only you did not lay here and die among strangers, without having one at hand who loved you dearly, and to whom you gave your dying kiss. Mr. and Mrs. Haskell, I have thus written rapidly whatever came up about Erastus, and must now close. Though we are strangers and shall probably never see each other, 
I send you and all of Erastus' brothers and sisters my love. Walt. And after this, uh, Walt Whitman gives the parents of Erastus Haskell his address in Brooklyn and his address in Washington, D.C. Uh, we can only imagine being parents and receiving this letter. I don't know whether they would have been appreciative of it or not, because it's written so sadly. Um, there's a great deal else that Whitman wrote during the Civil War uh, in prose and in poetry that I hope to record here, but it seemed to be uh, the best thing to start that series off seemed to be with this letter to two parents who had lost their son in the war and that Walt Whitman had loved briefly so much. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.